Hi, this is Patty Smythe, and you're listening to Everything Fab Four on Salon.com. Welcome to Everything Fab Four, a new podcast focused on fun and intelligent stories about the Beatles. I'm your host, Ken Womack, music culture columnist for Salon.com and a Beatles scholar and historian. No other band or popular phenomenon, for that matter, has enjoyed the global impact of the Beatles. They are part of our human fabric. They created an enduring music that brings people together, and just about everyone has their own Beatles story to tell, some that are surprisingly deep and unexpected. With each episode, we'll be featuring a new guest to share their Fab Four journey, along with amazing theme music from Black Rabbit. Remember, it's a Beatles world, and everybody has a story. I remember wanting to be a singer and so hyperventilating before I pressed play on a Beatles song because I never heard Paul or John inhale. So I thought you had to do a song on all one breath, you know, kind of circular breathing or scuba <laughs> style. <laughs> and, you know, not making it past whatever, the first verse and chorus or something, and just thinking like, God, I'm never going to get this. Today's guest is an American rapper, singer-songwriter, author, and former record executive. Known by her stage name, Dessa, she cut her musical teeth as a member of the indie hip-hop collective, Doomtree, after being drawn to their raw sound. A Minnesota native, Dessa has appeared on every Doomtree record since 2005. She also served as CEO of Doomtree's house label, a role she later relinquished to focus on her solo career. Over the years, she has released three solo albums, including A Badly Broken Code, Parts of Speech, and Chime, which registered a top five showing on Billboard's independent music charts and was listed among NPR's best albums of 2018. In 2019, She recorded a pair of concerts with the Minnesota Orchestra, and their collaboration led to a critically acclaimed live album. As a writer, she is perhaps most well-known for her collection of creative nonfiction essays entitled My Own Devices, True Stories from the Road on Music, Science, and Senseless Love, published by Dutton in 2018. Welcome, Dessa. We're so glad we could have you on the program, Dessa, and I wonder if we could kick things off with you telling us about your own Beatles origin story. How did they find their way into your musical world? So I was trying to think, I've got maybe three points um, that stand out as, as formative or instructive. And, you know, when I was a little kid, my father was a musician. He played classical guitar. And... And he had, you know, he, he had a modest but well-curated collection of stuff. And he was a huge, huge Beatles fan. And, um, and I remember as a, as a kid, the song Eight Days a Week, um, I must have been pretty little. And I, after listening to the chorus loop around, you know, I... I like, spoke to my mother about it and was like, oh, you know, the, essentially the copy editor here really missed a pitch. Like this, they're not eight. It's actually, you know. 
Yeah, like who do these Beatles think they are going out and inventing their own calendar with eight days per week? And it was like <laughs> the first time learning about poetic license, you know? She was like, well, what does that mean, do you think? You know, that he loves her, you know, eight days. And I was like, well, it's just factually wrong. And she was like, yes, it is factually wrong, but it means that he loves her so much, you know, that he would need an extra day to do it. And I was like, well, he's going to have to speed it up because he's only got so much time, man. Uh, but that for me was like this, this idea that, um, that a writer, that an artist could knowingly depart from the empirically observed world in an effort to make a larger point. Like that was, that was part of the Beatles lyricism for me, you know, I, when I was first kind of consciously aware of that. Had you already begun singing at this point? Uh, even as a youngster? Like, I, I sang a bit as a kid, but I wasn't, like, I wasn't one of those, like, Beyonce's, you know, where you'd see a video of her at eight and be like, that kid's got the magic. Like, I wasn't like that. I didn't sound great. But I remember wanting to be a singer and so hyperventilating before I pressed play on a Beatles song because I never heard Paul or John inhale. So I thought you had to do a song on all one breath, <laughs> you know, kind of circular breathing or scuba <laughs> style. <laughs> And, you know, not making it past whatever, the first verse and chorus or something, and just thinking, like, God, I'm never going to get this. Um, but, yeah, as a little kid, you know, those formative kind of moments about how language works and about how delivery and, and performance works, too, those those two stick out. Well, what if somebody had said a month of Sundays to you back then? That would have been... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you can't really do that. Blow my mind up, Dyke. Yeah. Um, I'm curious, when you became... And, and it sounds like you were a youngster when you began to contemplate singing because you were practicing not breathing. Um, <laughs> when did yeah. when did you, how did you decide, hey, this is going to be my profession. This is it. You know, I it, I was late to that realization, I think, when it comes to like a, pot, a lot of pop musicians or like bands and stuff. And, um, and I wasn't. I was very much like a, a depressive kind of loner, <laughs> stoner kid with a with a motley it's close motley crew um but yeah i wasn't in bands and i didn't like sing in choir or anything and in part i think it was because my mother had such a beautiful voice uh, and she wasn't a professional musician so I, I figured that if she didn't meet the standard that would be demanded for like vocational success as a musician then i had no shot now as a grown-up i just realized like my mom happened to have a really world-class voice and decided to pursue a different career but, um, but I remember her singing with all of the melismas in um, like a Whitney Houston song. And I know that she could hit all the notes, you know, when it played, she didn't have to drop down a third, you know, she could do it like Whitney did. And, um, and that's, a, that's just a hell of an instrument. But in my head, I was like, okay, well, I lost the singing contest of all the people in my own address. <laughs> like, there's no way that I'd be able to make it on the free market here, you know, and with an audition of, of others from the neighborhood or the city. Um, so I had initially wanted to become a, a writer, like a prose writer, um, in, in college and or like in my, you know, 20, 21, 22. And it was through that avenue that I ended up kind of adjusting course just a little bit to be in the slam poetry community. Cause I wasn't sure how to get published. I was like, okay, slam poet, but not great. And in that course adjustment yet again, found myself like connected with the hip hop community, um, in Minneapolis. 
You know, the phrase, do it like Whitney did. You should really keep that in your back pocket for a future title for something. That's just too good. (laughs) Because people would want to purchase that just to find out what the heck that is. Yeah, what is she talking? Whitney? Not the Whitney. You hold a philosophy degree, as I know you know. And I'm curious, uh, when you think about your career, in what ways has that degree helped you prepare yourself? I've, re- I've reconsidered my position on that a little bit in the past 10 years, or maybe the tools that it has equipped me with have changed in their relative order of importance, but being equipped with the basic lenses that you'd need to view the rest of the world, irrespective of where you went, in the same way that like learning Spanish allows you to go and do all sorts of shit in any Spanish-speaking country, right? You get to order a meal, try it you know, visit a church, date a boy, like all varieties of human experiences become available to you by the fact that you're fluent in this other language. And I think, I think studying philosophy taught me how to think better. So it's less about learning any particular content and more about learning how to, how to compare ideas, how to understand arguments, whether that means like watching a political convention, you know, or fighting with your mom, like better understanding morality and then being able to like hold some of those tuitions at an intuitions at like an arm's length and, and parse them a little bit. Like, is your first thought always your best and, and why or why not? Is there anything outside of my own lived experience that I can anchor this idea to? Like for me, it provided a, I don't know, like a whole, a whole scaffolding in my mind on which to better understand how my ideas relate to one another. I really like studying philosophy. Um, that said, there's a lot wrong with it. It's like a player's <laughs> game. It's the why the hell the words are so complicated. Like for people who can write so well, the fact that they're not making an intentional effort to welcome people into the study of philosophy instead of exclude them by by virtue of using some pretty Some words that they don't bother to define on first use, you know, on whatever, phenomenological or... Post-structuralist. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, to scatter your, like, you're writing about what it's like to be human. That is something which everyone should seemingly have a vested interest. But you're doing so in a tone and in a, and in a style that does not welcome I don't think, you know, it's such a drag. It's just like of all the books that you want to be able to pull off yourself and really get into, those would be among them. Yeah, and ontology and post-structuralism just don't look good on a doormat. But they're too big, for one thing, but they're not welcoming. Which I guess brings us to the larger point that the best writers, philosophers, communicators of any kind write are the ones who are trying to help us understand their point, not push us further away or distance us using language. Yeah. And, and in some ways, too, you know, to, to stop throwing stones, but um, it might also be that some of the best work that are, that's being done in the philosophical sphere now and in years, many years past, like, isn't being done by people who have philosopher on their business card. <laughs> you know, I find a lot of good philo- philosophical questions are investigated in film. You know, a lot of great philosophical questions are investigated meaningfully um, in literature. And you just don't you don't have all the prefixes and suffixes, you, you know, it, it's, it's not the language in which they're being done. So, but yeah, I think that also in, in 
years past, I've also just wondered if maybe I really got into philosophy because there's a particular kind of writing muscle you have to get good at um, that I really liked listening to other people use, which was um, figurative language. Like when you're describing something that's really hard, one of the best ways to do it is to use a metaphor or a simile, you know? And, um, and I love comparative language. I love when you find like similarities between fundamentally dissimilar things. Like that's, I think just, that's one of the favorite things, like watch the, the trained animal that is my brain do. I love it when it does that. I think it's cool. And I love watching other people do it. I'm curious how you deploy those ideas then in songwriting. So when it comes to songwriting vis-a-vis the Beatles, we often talk about structure. And they, in, especially in their earlier years, had a plan when they would begin to write a song. I'm wondering, and I think our listeners would be interested in learning about how you approach the idea of songwriting. Where do you begin? Yeah, I would say there's kind of one of two methods that I usually employ. One is sitting and, and rather inexpertly sort of like banging at a, at a keyboard in, in my room. Um, if a song starts that way, usually it's about getting a scrap of a melody, a cool, a cool progression somehow getting some cool lyrics that phrase in an interesting way over a cool idea. But I'm not enough of like a, an orchestrator to say, okay, I've got my verse. Now I just need to figure out exactly what the chord structure would be for a pre-chorus to get me here. So very often, if I've got something that feels like, hey, there's something here, you know, there's, there's, there's an uncut stone. I'll take it to somebody who's good at stone cutting. I'll take it to usually um, one of my friends in Doomtree, like Laserbeak or Sea Slaughter on occasion, um, or the person with whom I've collaborated on orchestral stuff, Andy Thompson, and say, hey, here's a raw idea. What do you think? Because I feel like I've never been good at knowing when I've got one song structure piece, whether it's a verse or a chorus, or maybe a verse and a chorus, like what would be the bridge to best complement it? But I do feel like I've got I've gotten a lot better at coming up with like, hey, this hangs, there's, there's, um, <laughs> this melody is compelling and these words are cool and I can play piano well enough to explain <laughs> how this idea goes. Um, and that's been a lot of fun. Whereas in the beginning of my career, it was always, always, um, for anything I recorded with any seriousness, that I was receiving a beat CD or a, you know, a downloadable file from a producer, which is essentially not final sequence, but there's like a, you know, one or two or three minutes of, of music playing without any, lyrics on it kind of rough stuff that if you like you say "Ooh, dibs i'm the vocalist who wants this one and then you write to it for a while and working with the team you then craft like okay this is going to be the chorus this is going to be the verse but i think more than most of the people that i that i happen to work with i've always liked really distinct structure like i like when the verse sounds really different than the chorus and there's a cool pre-chorus or post-chorus and bridge like i love that shit when we return after these messages, Dessa is going to continue uh, her lively discussion about songwriting, uh, even discussing collaborative authorship and what that means, and perhaps even talking about a song that will be the one you need to help you through our ongoing pandemic to empower you right after these messages. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. 
to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. We're back with Dessa on everything Fab Four. It sounds like you don't have any problem thinking about authorship as something that's collaborative or corporate, where multiple mm-hmm. people are engaging in it. And I've always, I've often, I've always been fascinated. Rather, I've always been fascinated by. Uh, particularly in popular music where you'll see, you know, a Lennon and McCartney. And of course, young you probably learned pretty quickly that it wasn't always Lennon and McCartney or that George Martin, the producer, stepped in and, you know, he played the the beautiful piano solo on In My Life. And yet he's not there in the credits, (laughs) you know, in terms of authorship. And you have some bands, I, I think we can point to what Coldplay, for example, who gives everybody credit. Um, what do you think about those kind of issues? I think it's interesting, um, first of all, to see how malleable our systems still are. That essentially, like the Nashville model, I think, is that if you and I were in a room and we were writing a song together, um, and my little brother is there, that anybody in the room gets equal credit. Um, I've heard that to be the case. That's not how I. That's not how I work, and I, I haven't worked that way with Nashville folks. But there's just like a, like a convention about how credit is, is allocated to to authorship, um, which is really different than you might find in some groups where people are really haggling over like that 1%, you know, well, hold on, but I, no, that I wrote that, look, I'll find an email that says that I wrote this bit. Um, so I find it sort of weird that it's not a standardized thing, to be honest. I think it's strange how, um, even in our attempts to like standardize how the creative process works, a lot of it is just us, making stuff up and trying to make up something that works well enough that no one quits the band. You know what I mean? <laughs> um, also, I think there is, um, um, because creative relationships, like all human relationships, but maybe especially creative relationships are, are subject to power dynamics between people, right? Like who's the person who gets the biggest yells on stage is going to be the person who might command most power in the band or, or the person who was last to join, <laughs> you know, might command the least power, whatever. That um, because those human relationships are at play, I, I do think that um, the fact that like a Lauren Hill would contest the credit that she's been given is being really, really insufficient and not representative of the contributions that she made to the songs that she's recorded. I do think that you find this kind of sexist um, structure at play where you presume that a woman is more likely to be the voice of a song than the author of a song or the writer of a song. I, I absolutely agree. And I, I would even, you know, blame the Victorians a little bit if it's okay. I mean, they're the ones who, uh, you know, we sort of invented this idea of solitary authorship, the solitary genius working alone by candlelight, you know, in the middle of the night, uh, as opposed to, you know, people working together and socializing you know, as copy editors or what have you, a work into being, um, you know, those other hands are there. I mean, I, you know, by the same token, Ringo Starr doesn't get credit for sitting there for 14 hours while they work out an idea and undoubtedly is adding to the, um, to the composition. And it feels, this is a total, you fact check this, because this is a pet theory that I should maybe be more cautious with, but but the idea that in Western culture, it's like even how we notate music, you imagine a staff, and I can't read music, but everyone can imagine the lines on the paper, you know what I mean? And then if you have a dot that's higher than the line before, the melody goes up. Like we're really good at notating melody. And 
I don't know if we are as good at notating metric, like in time, if we're notating like really syncopated stuff. Um, I know sometimes when I'm working in, in, in choral environments that it's like, oh, you know, it's, it's tough to get people to, to operate in syncopation and stuff. But I just, I wonder sometimes if the fact that we don't give the rhythm makers authorship in the way that we give melody makers authorship, like isn't a really deeply cultural idea. Whereas if we were operating in a, in a different value system musically, the, the metric nature of the song, the rhythm would be as important as the, as the melody and the words. And we would make sure to, to compensate percussionists and drummers in a different way. Well, let's take Come Together, for example. Yes. You know, John Lennon, who wrote a lovely song with, with fantastic lyrics, came in. He didn't say, Ringo, I want you to do this really specific and innovative drum beat. I mean, that drum beat is arresting and in many ways makes the song. It happens from that, that, incredible, um, that incredible fill. It's not even a fill. It's an introduction uh, to the song that he concocts. It's just always fascinated me. Well, I want to turn to one of your songs, which I listen to a lot. Uh, and, and I do see, by the way, you talked about your emergence and development over the past several years and across your career. You can really see, if you listen to the whole of Dessa, that happen as you get to chime. Um, I, I really feel that evolution uh, in terms of structure and composition. I would even go so far as to direct listeners to uh, a specific song on Chime, um, Five Out of Six, that I recommend frequently to folks who are in tough straits, who need uh, something, a song to empower them to a better place. And in the case of Five Out of Six, um, there is a notable difference between the version on the Chime album and most recently on your collaboration with the Minnesota Orchestra. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about how that came about. That one in particular, to translate into an orchestral environment when you've got a song that is really studio heavy, right? You know, you're, you're relying a lot on the, on the tools that are available to you in the studio. Um, even things like delay yeah so for someone who's listening to a song you know sometimes you hear a singer go hey and then that singer goes hey 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 it kind of echoes that's called delay and and you can't do that obviously in a you can't just turn the delay button on in an environment <laughs> where you're working with you know 70 some orchestral players so it's really cool to see andy's arrangement fake that you know so maybe you've got some violins going and then some going to kind of fake that not fake to translate that feeling into a live environment well and and in that song in particular you know even though they're the essentially the same lyrics right the the studio version to me is a powerful voice your voice you know telling me how it is here's how i operate <laughs> you know i leave the cameras running <laughs> right um and yet the orchestral version, as you said, with the arranger, it's high drama. Yeah. That's a big song. It is. It is. And it's um it's funny. I get the feeling even now, just like sitting in my apartment in quarantine, a little bit of the feeling that I remember having in my body, which was there are two songs that are really full out, you know, it's like the whole orchestra going loud, going hard, and going aggressive. Um, that song, Five Out of Six, and the song called Warsaw, which had initially actually been partly inspired by um, Come Together by the Beatles. And 
feeling like I was rapping this tough song, right? You know, so the lyrics are 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 unapologetic and and kind of badass. But then feeling the orchestra overtake me, it's like standing, um, it's like standing on the shoreline facing the land, and feeling the water curl up over your head and coming. It's down. big. It's really big, and you are you you don't maintain this central voice and player. You become this. Um, I don't know. It does have kind of a a semi tragic epic to it because you you can't be bigger than the sound behind you. And in this case, the sound behind you is massive. Let's give our listeners uh, a quick taste of five out of six. Some method actress trying to see my my descent. You're gonna have to play the tape back with save that breath for choir practice. Got no time for my detractors standing on my staircase. All you want is a fire hazard. I put my time in now. I'm vetted, uncontested. See how an honest answer shuts down. Motherfuckers asking trick questions. I'm out here, arms wide, hiding nothing. I've done it all in broad daylight. I left the cameras on the What to do? I'm running a tight ship. Every deckhand here has a five-year plan and an ice pick. They can write cold, they can drive stick. I got an octave on you and a high kick. Don't think I don't black, I'm a bleeder. All I do is hit. I don't want them all, but I'd say I take five out of six. Clock's running, better glove up. If you insist, okay, let's see who's really counting. Cause my who's been kind of fit. I'm a such an incredible power in that song as you said it's it's badass but the orchestration with that powerful brass and the strings behind you um really elevates uh your incredible vision it was a really emotional experience recording that i you know at the end of warsaw too i remember just feeling feeling teary you know and again credit to andy thompson but the arrangements are just really they're they're brutal but they're really beautiful. You know, he did a, he did a great job, I think, of like, of not, of not leaning too hard into the, into the beauty. Like there's also ferocity and, you know, that's available with an, with an enormous lush string section, but like also it's just some of the ugh, grit and damage and brutality of it. So how did the Beatles come together, help you during the composition of your song, Warsaw? So I don't want to overplay it, but it was a little bit, I, I, I was, given the beat to Warsaw by a fellow Doomtree cohort named Paper Tiger. And um, 
it's a weird beat. It's like, it's just weird. It's weird sounds. And it, and it's, to me, felt kind of like dystopian. Uh, it's like if it was a film, you know, it wouldn't, it wouldn't be in the full array of colors. It would be kind of a muddied purple blue. It felt very filtered. It felt uh, kind of menacing, which isn't usually the kind of beat that I would go for. I have sort of a big, slightly popular sensibilities, but I was like, yo, this beat is, this beat is really cool. And then I started pace, I like walked around my neighborhood with it and my headphones, which is usually how I start writing. And, and I got some cool lines, like you kind of think of like both content and percussive qualities. Like I got some cool patterns together. And I was like, what the hell is this song about? Like this all sounds cool, but what am I, what's the narrative? What am I talking about? What's the thesis statement? And then listening to come together, like I was like, maybe I don't need a thesis statement. Um, there, that is such, that to me is a song that runs not on a simple sentence in a chorus that then is expounded upon or supported by verses, right? I love you and here's why, you got pretty hair and you're kind or whatever. It's the kind of an imagistic flip book that leans in a little bit to the surreal. Um, and I thought maybe I could do that. Beats in Warsaw are absolutely marvelous, and listening to them now, I think our, our audience can pick up on the come-together influence that does exist there in, in giving the drums sort of their own identity. Switching gears, I wonder if you could say a few words about how your writing process differs when you take off your musician's cap and put on your prose writer hat. Yeah, I mean, in part, I think a lot of the differences in the creative process, there are many, but part of them is just a product of um, the scope. Like if you were to build a toothpick bridge, right? And then blow it up to this, like big enough to span the Hudson River, the toothpick bridge would fall down because it's not built to hold that much weight. You have to have a design because for large scale projects, like it helps to have that, you gotta see it all. You have to see it all laid out because you might forget what you said on page four and how that could inform a reader's impression on page nine if you're describing the same character, you know? Whereas in a song, it's you can sort of think of a whole song pretty well without having to write it down and plan it and make a make a storyline. You know what I mean? Because it's a smaller thing. Same thing with the poem. You can kind of see it all in one frame. Before we leave today, um, I want to treat you to a game we often play here at Everything Fab Four, where we ask you to consider which Beatles song, or uh, in the case of John Anderson, who was our most recent guest, which Beatles album you might take if you were stranded forever on a desert island. Oh, God. It's interesting, because in some ways, I wouldn't want to commit to the songs that I find myself singing a lot, because they're too sad, like um, Michelle or Norwegian Wood or something. Like, but I don't want to feel that way on <laughs> a desert island at Infinitum. Um, Imagine feels so hopeful to me, and it feels true, and it feels like I always, like the sad Christmas, um, but gosh, so, so much of their, so much of their catalog, and maybe this is why I like it, is so much about our relationships with others. And that's not true of every, of every band. You know what I mean? 
but their 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 stuff i think really does center on human dynamics that it would just feel so sad to be the only human in a dynamic gosh that would be awful to be the last person on the world listening to music about relationships and enjoying the company of others and learning from them perhaps you do require like john anderson of yes uh, an entire album with which to wait for rescue or spend the rest of eternity. Is that possible? Okay, I'm a white album. I say white album now. Well, that's an excellent choice any day of the week, even if the week has eight days, as you noted earlier. The white album, 30 songs, 30,000 emotions with which to spend the rest of time on your desert island. Thanks so much, Dessa, for being here, and thank you, everyone. Uh, for making our first season of Everything Fab Four so exciting and indeed illuminating. We'll see you in 2021. Everything Fab Four is presented by Salon.com the premier news, politics, innovation, and arts website. For more information about the podcast, visit everythingfab4.com, where you can learn more about our podcast and my latest Beatles-related book, John Lennon 1980, The Last Days in the Life. The Everything Fab Four theme song, Seize the Day, is provided courtesy of Black Rabbit, the high-octane Beatles cover band and innovative psychedelic rock project from Rockaway Beach, Queens in New York City. Like what you heard today on Everything Fab Four? Be sure to subscribe, give us a rating, and recommend the show to your friends. Plus, you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter at EF4 Podcast. Distributed by Salon, Everything Fab Four is a wonderful all production with editing and post-production assistance from music industry and communication students at Monmouth University. Remember, it's a Beatles world, and everyone has a story.